What a great song to move into our, our message time. Before we dig into the message today, I uh, wanted to touch base on a couple of things. First of all, uh, Pastor Katie, our children's pastor, had had our first Wednesday night VBS. And what we're doing this year is taking uh, five weeks or five nights and dividing it by five weeks. And so Wednesday night at seven o'clock each week, uh, Katie's going to be live uh, along with Brenna and uh, help us just have this VBS time together. If you didn't have an opportunity to join us this past Wednesday night at seven, uh, you can log on to the children's pages and you can you can participate in that still. Um, if you missed it, be sure to join us again this Wednesday night at seven o'clock uh, for our VBS time with for our kids. And so hopefully you're able to engage with us that way. The second thing I want you to know is is maybe uh, you miss Sunday morning at 9 or at 1040 because there are a ton of other things to do or there's uh, other things, other commitments that you have. Uh, be sure to log on to our website or go to our YouTube page so that you can catch up on the messages that you may have missed. And so that's really important, especially as we journey through this series. I know we've spent like seven weeks already in the book of Acts, and we're going to spend some more time in the book of Acts as we dig into this idea of being the scattered church, or, or maybe a better way to say it is the sent church. Uh, two other things that I'd really like for you to participate in. One is our annual commitment card. Uh, each year at Mountain View, we take time, usually in February or March, where we ask you to communicate with our finance team your intentions for giving. And uh, because of COVID-19 and all the things that happened, we really weren't going to do that this year. However, um, as we look at, at the, uh, the economy and, and the lack of funds in the state and all these other issues that are happening, we really would like to have this information so that we can try to predict as best as, as possible um, a, a budget, uh, income. And so if you don't mind, you can follow the link this morning. If you haven't read my All Church email, you can follow the link this morning and uh, provide that information, that confidential information to our finance team. The, th the final thing I'd like you to do is we have put together a, a survey, a COVID-19 regathering survey and uh, we have a plan. We've put this plan together. We're waiting for the when, uh, not the if, but the when. Um, until then, we'd really like to get some of your feedback. And so there are several questions there for you to inform us about where you're at and, and what you're thinking about gathering again in this place. And so that would be really helpful uh, to our staff as we move forward and uh, make, make some of these decisions here in the near future. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be reviewing this morning Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. I know we've been in there a long time, but it's just important to do because I, I don't want you to miss some of these really key fundamental principles that are foundational as we continue to journey and start in chapter 3 uh, next week. And so when you think of the word church or you hear the word church, what's interesting is there are a lot of different images that come to mind. There just are. And, and one of the things I've realized about myself, and maybe this is true for you too, is I'm probably a little bit off from, from how church was understood in Acts chapter 2, in the very beginning when the church launched. I'm probably still a little off, even though I have studied Acts, and I, and I love the book of Acts, and I love the early church, and I've looked at this so much, right? I'm still probably a little off. And, and this is what I know. At the inception of the church... It was a movement that was built around a conviction. 
It was a conviction, and this movement was established because there was this deeply rooted conviction that, that, that the early disciples, they possessed. And so the church was a movement that was built around this conviction, and it was built on the conviction and belief that Jesus died as the Savior of the world for sinners, and he rose from the dead, proving he was who he said he was. This conviction was about Jesus being the rightful Lord of, of earth and, and of all people everywhere. And it now commanded that people would repent and turn from their ways and that we were invited to belong to him and be a part of him. And so the word church is really this, this Greek New Testament word called ecclesia. And, and what ecclesia means is an assembly or a gathering of people around an idea or a common theme. And so ecclesia is actually two words broken down. Ek means out of, and kaleo means called out. And so in other words, ecclesia is an assembly of people who are called out around an idea. Now it's really important to catch that called out concept because it's not sent in or it's not sent to. It's this called out idea and it almost reminds us of the word holy. And the word holy means to be set apart. And when we belong to Jesus, we're a holy priesthood is what Peter says. We're a holy people, a holy nation who have been, who have been called out. And, and so that's what this is. Over the years, however, something happened to this original meaning of the church. And instead, people began to think of church of a, as a place, a place that you went to for some sort of religious service of some kind. And so our English word, it's a really interesting concept, our, our English word church actually comes from a German word, Kirsche. That's what it is, which means a sacred place. Notice the difference between Ecclesia and Kirsche. A sacred place where people gather for religious purposes. And so through the years, there's been this battle. There's been this shift in thinking. There's been this idea, this change, right? And the idea that the primary idea that people held about church, it began to change and, and their perspective changed as it related to different opinions and different perspectives. Throughout the dark in the Middle Ages, for example, people went to church. That's where we got it. We started going to church. It was a place you attended or it was an, an event that you participated in. It was something that you sat through rather than a movement that you would be a part of. And as a result, the church became this institutional place, an institution that provided a service for people and actually ended up being controlled by really powerful people who used church to really serve their own interests. And so then you have this period of the Reformation, and maybe you've heard of this in church history or you've studied it, and there were some reformers, and, and they came to the conclusion that Christianity should have been a movement, so they went back to the original meaning of the church, should have been a movement where people were devoted to the movement because they were convicted and they were convinced of this set of beliefs or this idea, and so they wanted people to understand. So there's a guy named William Tyndale, maybe you've heard of him. William Tyndale, he committed his life work to producing a translation of the Bible so that the common people could actually understand it. And, and so what he did is, is instead of using the word church, when he came to the Greek New Testament word ecclesia, he would translate it to congregation. 
because he wanted people to understand that, that that's what the church was all about. And so Tyndale was trying to emphasize that the church was not a place you went to. Instead, it was a movement that you belonged to. And as you can imagine, this actually angered church leaders because it diminished their authority. When you empower everybody to understand and interpret Scripture, guess what happens? They begin to understand and be enlightened and become a part of this, this movement. So Tindo was convicted as a heretic, and then he was hanged and burned. That's what happened to him. And so Tyndale, he's recorded saying right before his death, if God spares my life or many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. This was his goal, get the scriptures into as many people as he possibly could. And as Tyndale was being burned, his last recorded words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And if you've ever owned... If you've ever owned a Bible that's named the King James Version, you'll know that Tyndale's prayer was actually answered. And so the church today, we have to understand the church today is an assembly of people that is built around the movement with a very particular mission. And we have to acknowledge that, and we have to know that, we have to believe that. Maybe the church is at risk in every generation, not just Tyndale's generation. Maybe this is the reality for every generation, including our generation, that the church is at risk where it stops being a movement, and it becomes a ministry that only provides a service to people. Or worse, it just becomes a place where you attend. I think this has maybe been the challenge for a long time, right? Because here's the deal. Movements move. That's why it's called a movement. And if I am a part of a church, I am a part of a movement, which means I move. Are we as a church just doing ministry? Are we as a church just running an institution? Or are we a part of a movement where God is doing something? Is the church just a place that we attend? Or is it a movement that I have personally invested in that I'm personally a part of? And so let's dig in just a little bit deeper, a little bit of review. Let's create this fundamental concept. It's so important for us as we move forward through the book of Acts. And I want to dig into Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 6. It says this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? I, I still, I marvel at this question that the disciples ask. I mean, you got to think of their journey. They're with him for three years. They left their lives. They're committed to him. They're trying to comprehend his teachings, right? They're trying to wrap their head around everything that he taught them. And then all of a sudden, he gets put on trial. Ultimately, he is crucified on the cross, the, the cruelest death penalty that you could ever experience. And, and the disciples initially scatter. As far as we know, John's the only one who stuck around for that part. And then Jesus is buried. But on Sunday, he rose from the dead. And the disciples were in awe. And then 40 days later, Jesus is talking to him in this very moment. And the disciples are eager. They're asking the question, what's the question? They're really saying, Jesus, what's your next move? What are you going to do next? What are you going to accomplish next? Look at verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And witnesses is this court term, right? It's someone who testifies to what they saw. A witness's job is not to do something. A witness's job is to speak, to tell about what they saw, what has already been done. Look at the second part of verse 8. And so you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when Jesus had said these things, as the disciples were looking on, Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in heaven? And this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. And so you get this incredible moment. This, it's not just incredible. I mean, if I'm quite honest and we look at this and say, it's a weird moment. This is an odd moment. This isn't something that you would see every day. Jesus had just given the disciples one of the, one of the greatest, largest biggest, hugest tasks that he that had ever been given to humanity. Did you capture that? I mean, it's the biggest task that you could ever imagine. And then, without hardly an explanation, Jesus just floats up into heaven. He says, listen, you're going to be my witnesses in Jer Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he says, see ya. I can almost imagine the disciples standing there looking, saying, uh, wait, hey, Jesus, hold on. What? The whole world? The whole world? Jesus, do you have any idea how big the world is? And you can almost hear Jesus as he's ascending into heaven. You know how it is at a 30,000-foot view. The world is big. And Jesus is like, oh, boys, you have no idea how big it is. See ya. I mean, it's one of these oddest moments because here it is. This is where it all began 2,000 years ago. And, and, and then 2,000 years later, right here now, with, we have more Christians in the world than in any other religious group. And it all started with 12 fishermen, 12 carpenters, and a tax collector. And we look back and we think, how did they do this? Jesus delivered this task. He gave them this mission. He said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to be witnesses to everything that you've seen and heard. And then the gospel message is going to spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. And they're thinking the world is so big. And Jesus has said, I believe in you. You can do this. You can do this. And so I think there's a couple of qualities that we need to look at when it comes to a movement. There's a couple of qualities that I want us to, to really capture and understand because, because these qualities are going to be critical for you and me if we're going to understand the early church, if we're going to be like, like the church Jesus really wanted us to be. And so the first quality that we see that's important, it's critical for a movement is this, that the message, the message had captured their hearts and minds. I mentioned this last week, but I, we cannot miss this. The disciples were captured by the truth that Jesus had died as a substitute for sinners. There was a penalty for sin. There was a price that had to be paid for sin. And they were captured by the heart that Jesus was that price that was paid. And so they absolutely 100% believed 
that Jesus was God in the flesh, not just another prophet, not just somebody sent down with good teaching, with some moral values. They absolutely 100% believed with their whole heart and in their mind and in their heart, maybe their soul too, that Jesus was God in the flesh. He wasn't another prophet with, with just another religious message. He was God himself on, an, on a rescue operation to save humanity. What else did they believe in? They believed that Jesus was crucified because of them. Remember in Acts chapter 2, where Peter stands up and preaches and says, You did this. You did this. You killed him. You put him on the tree. You, you did this, right? Well, the disciples believed they were a part of that too. Jesus was crucified. Why? Because they were rebellious and because they were selfish. Because they wanted to be in control of their own life and run their own life instead of submitting to God, our creator. And yet in the world's greatest irony story, our murder of Jesus, his sacrificial death was the payment that God accepts for my sin and for your sin. And so they absolutely believed that Jesus was absolutely risen from the dead. They, the disciples believed Jesus was alive 100%. They didn't want to believe their Messiah would die in weakness and then be resurrected. This isn't something that they longed for. They believed that their Messiah would come as a, as a warrior, as a, as, a, as a political leader, as somebody who would who released them from the, the captivity of Rome. And so to have a Messiah who would die, not just die, but die on the cross... And to be risen, that wasn't their idea of a Messiah. But what they saw is they witnessed him. They saw him with their very own eyes. This proved to them beyond a doubt he was who he said he was. What else did they believe? They believed that all of this was the greatest act of grace ever imagined. The disciples understood if this was all true, that this was the greatest gift of grace that had ever been given to anybody in the world, and that this is finally the most important message ever. They were captured by the very most important message that any one of us would ever hear. This message is our only hope for salvation. If this was true, then there are no other ways to get to God. There is only one way, just as Jesus declared in John 14, 6. It said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said it. They believed it. They were bought into it. And in a couple of weeks, we're going we're gonna to read this verse and we're going to look at this passage in Acts chapter 4 where Peter yet preaches another sermon. And this is what he says, and there is salvation in no one else. You can find salvation nowhere else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I remember being in high school probably 15 years old, attending my first Christ in Youth Conference as a, as a youth student. And we sang a song during worship that was, that was founded on this verse. And I, I still thought of it last night, even as I was, I was singing it in my head. I was singing it this morning as I was getting ready. And it says this, One name under heaven whereby we must be saved, forgiven of my sin, baptized in the water, filled with the Holy Spirit, washed in the blood of the Lamb. It says, now I'm free. I'm really free, freed by the blood of the Lamb. And this is what it says. God's going to move this place. God's going to move this place. God's going to turn this world upside down. Why? Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the answer. He is our hope. There is no other hope. He's it. This is all. And so they viewed, these disciples, they viewed Jesus' death and they saw God so beautiful and so glorious that he was worth giving their entire lives away for it. 
that they gave their lives away because of God who deserved all the glory to spread uh, the message across all the earth, the whole earth. And so they saw Jesus command storms and they saw Jesus converse with angels and they saw Jesus control demons and they saw Jesus walk on water. They saw Jesus heal lepers and they watched Jesus raise people from the dead. And yet in the moment that these powers would have been the most helpful while Jesus is being hung on the cross, he gave up his life as a sacrifice for all of us. This message captured their hearts and their minds in ways that seem unbelievable to us today. And so when the disciples were confronted by the religious leaders and told to shut up and to stop the message about Jesus or they would be killed, they said, ha, ha. We're captured. Our hearts and minds are captured by the reality of who Jesus is, that he is who he said he was, and he did the things that he said he did, and he is alive today. And so the question for us is this. Has the gospel message captured all of your heart and all of your mind? Have you been captured by the gospel totally and completely that you would surrender your whole life to him. That you would go when he says go. That you'd be sent when it's time to be sent. That you'll speak when it's time to speak. That you'll act when it's time to act. Has the gospel captured us until we can't shut our mouths about it? Are we willing to do whatever it takes, go wherever we need to go? Are we willing to give up anything and everything for it? If not... This is hard. If not, then you're not a part of the movement. I'm not a part of the movement. Are we willing to do whatever it takes? See, there is no such thing as someone who really believes, who really believes, who's really been captured by the gospel message, who sits on the sidelines. It doesn't exist. It can't happen. And so there's a second quality of a movement. Here it is. They surrendered themselves to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. They surrendered themselves to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. If we go back into our minds to the moment that Jesus ascended into heaven after telling them that they would be witnesses across the globe, here's the reality. Never had a more important task been given to a less qualified group of people. That gives me so much peace. Because if, if, God, if God can use this group of people to accomplish what has been a reality for the last 2,000 years, what can God do with you? What can he do with me? What is he capable of with Christians across the globe today? Because this important task was given to this very unqualified group of people. Look at Acts chapter 1. Let's remember what Luke wrote to Theophilus. He said this, in my first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Did you capture this? This is, this is what we're talking about. It's about everything that Jesus began to do. 
all that Jesus began implies that there is a continuation, that this is still going, that it's not stopping. This is the invitation that we should all long for. Jesus didn't just work on earth for three years and then disappear and call it done. Jesus began something. And in the book of Acts, we see how Jesus continued his work through the church. It was an invitation to join him in what he had already started to do. And so Jesus told the disciples, wait for the Holy Spirit, wait for the Holy Spirit. And I think Jesus was trying to show them that this is not something that they can do for him. That this is something that Jesus has to do through them. And in every chapter in the book of Acts, there's this sense that the church is simply just following the Spirit, listening to the Spirit. The church surrendered their lives to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And that he's the real power. He's the real movement. He's working through people over here and, and he's moving people over here and he's accomplishing things through people everywhere. I know that sounded like a little bit of a Dr. Seuss story, didn't it? Here's the reality. They submitted themselves to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And the question for us is this. Have we, have you, have I surrendered our lives to the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Listen, if you read the, the end of the book of Acts, which we actually won't get to, all right? But you'll notice that there really isn't an ending. As, as the book of Acts winds up, Paul, he goes to Rome so that he can preach the gospel message so that other people can be captured by the message with their hearts and minds. And then the book ends. Why? Because the movement's just beginning. The movement's just beginning. The Spirit of God is moving in you and me into people's lives to complete and to fulfill the Great Commission. And I want us to read this next verse because it's so important for us to understand this. Look at this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says this, But you, did you catch that? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. On you. You and you will be my witnesses then in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You and me. When we read this, who is it written to? Christians. It's the history of the early church. It's really, in a lot of ways, our guidebook of how we do things as a church. And he says, what? You will be my witnesses if you're listening right now, I want you to hear this. We have a responsibility. We have a task to fulfill. We have a commission to fulfill. It is up to you and it's up to me to be witnesses to the gospel message that has captured my heart and my mind. It's your job to be witnesses to the gospel message that has captured your heart. As disciples, we have each been empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be witnesses. The Holy Spirit does a lot of things according to Luke's gospel. And the Holy Spirit does a lot of things according to the book of Acts. And one of the things that we will see consistently is the way the Holy Spirit fills us to speak. In fact, the filling of the Holy Spirit in the heart produces the words of God in our mouths. I want you to see this. In Luke chapter 1, verse 15, it says this, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. This is talking about John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did John the Baptist do? He prepared the way. He spoke about making a way for the Messiah, for Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 41, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth 
Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did she do? She shouted. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you. She proclaimed a blessing over Mary that day. When she was filled with the Holy Spirit, she spoke. She proclaimed. In chapter 1 of Luke, verse 67, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did he do? He prophesied about the coming glory of Jesus, that Jesus was on his way and that the ministry would begin. And then you jump to the book of Acts and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other languages. They declared God's praises. They declared the gospel message that he was alive and everybody understood it in other languages. Acts chapter four, verse eight. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. What did he do? He talked. He said, he said, he preached to the rulers, the religious rulers, and they, he told them that Jesus is the only hope for their salvation. Chapter 4, verse 31, And when they had prayed in the place where they had gathered together, was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And what did they do? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They shared. They told other people about the gospel message. And they did this in the face of persecution, not just, just not a little punishment, the, the death penalty. And then in Acts chapter 9, this great moment, Paul experienced Jesus face to face. He saw that he was alive and, and he, he was blinded. You fast forward in the story, this is what it says. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and what? be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was the disciples at Damascus. And then what? Immediately, immediately he proclaimed Jesus. Where? In the synagogues. He experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit. And he, what did he do? He went to preach. He went to tell people Jesus is alive, that he rose from the dead, and that he is our only hope for salvation. That's what he does. Does this describe you and does this describe me? Do we regularly, do we regularly proclaim the gospel message to other people? Do we seize the moment and the opportunity? Or do we sit back and make excuses and say things like, well, that's Pastor Tom's job or I don't have what it takes, or that's not my gift, or I just want to be a good example and a witness with my life, or I don't have time, or talking to other people about Jesus makes me feel weird. And the simple question is this, do we really want to bring the gospel message to other people? Do we really want to bring other people to Jesus? Do we really want this? If we did, we would figure it out regardless of the excuse. We just would. It probably isn't an excuse problem if we're honest. It isn't. It's likely a belief problem. It's likely that we really haven't been captured by the gospel message like we probably should. It's probably not just a belief problem. It's also probably an apathy problem. It's so much easier to sit behind the TV or our computer and to communicate to the world what we believe in. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. I found this in a sermon that he preached in 1873. It says this, Once more, he who really has this high estimate of Jesus will think much of him. And as the thoughts are sure to run over at the mouth, he will talk much of him. Do we so? 
If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it in your children's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you'll be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of Jesus's sweet love. Here it is. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. But that man who says, I believe in Jesus, but does, does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him by mouth or pen or tract is for sure an imposter. You are either doing good or you are not good yourself. If you knowest Christ, thou art as one that has found honey Thou wilt call others to taste of it. Thou art like the lepers who found the food from the Syrians had cast away. Thou wilt go to Samaria and tell the hungry crowd that thou hast found Jesus and art anxious that they should find him too. Be wise in your generation and speak of him in fitting ways and in fitting times. And so in every place proclaim the fact that Jesus is most precious to your soul. Man, it's as if it's as if Spurgeon was writing that to us today. And so are you an imposter? Or are you a missionary? This is what I want us to know this morning. Let me summarize it for us really quick. Because this has to be foundational. It has to be fundamental as we understand the church and as we begin to journey more into the book of Acts, we need to understand that the mission came first. And then the church. Man, sometimes we get this backwards. The mission came in Acts chapter 1, and the church wasn't established until Acts chapter 2. Why? Because God doesn't have a mission for his church. He made the church for his mission. And we cannot misunderstand this. We cannot confuse this. We have to understand this and make it foundational and fundamental to how we think about the Christian movement, right? And so God doesn't, he didn't have a mission for his church. He didn't create the church and then give a mission. He made the church to accomplish, to fulfill, to complete the mission. We never want to become just a Christian ministry that takes care of our own needs or a place or a building for people just to attend. We are a part of something that Jesus began. We have a task to fulfill. Here's another one. Movements move. And if we're not moving, we're not a part of the movement. It's that simple. God doesn't draw us in. He doesn't pursue us. His light doesn't draw us without then again pushing us out. That's the movement. It doesn't stop. It's circular. It keeps going. You got to keep going. You got to keep going. We are saved people to become sent people. And if we're not moving, we have to consider the message that we've been captured by. And some of us, some of us, it's true. We've believed in a message. We've, we've made Christianity about so many other things besides the fact that Jesus is alive. 
we say, sure, he's alive, but you also have to believe this, and you also have to do this, and you also have to think this. You have to all these things. You have to vote this way. You got you got to you got to do these things. You got to you got to think this way. You got to live this way. Oh man, the message is this: Jesus is alive. He began a good work. He's at the right hand of God, and he's continuing that good work through us today. Complacency in the Christian life always points to being out of touch, to the urgency of the message, and being blind by the glory of Jesus. We can't be complacent. And so the question is this, and I want to leave you with this question. I want you to think about it as we sing this song and we prepare for our prayer time and communion but here's the question. Please don't ignore this. Ask yourself this question. Has my heart and has my mind been captured by the message? And have I surrendered my life to the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Did you hear it? Have you been awestruck by who Jesus is and what Jesus did? Has it captured your heart and your mind? And if so, have you surrendered totally and completely to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in your life? I want you to think about that right now as we sing this song.